Hi, this is Mina Lele, and today we'll be mapping the baby microbiome on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Minal Lele. Minal Lele is author of The Baby in the Biome, which is linked in the show notes. As a food allergy and asthma parent, she is committed to bringing an end to the immune diseases that plague 80 million Americans. Minal has designed, run, and published multiple large clinical studies across orthopedics, vascular medicine, and allergy. She has an engineering and a business degree from the University of Pennsylvania and is the founder of Little Mixins, an allergy prevention company. Hello, Mino. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi, thanks for having me. So tackling the microbiome is a huge topic. I'm glad we get to look at this through the lens of the baby's biome. Can you start us off by talking about the key differences between a baby's biome and that in an adult human? Well, the biggest difference is, you know, the baby's not quite a tabula rasa, right? The baby's born with some, and although there is a debate about how much of a biome a baby has in utero, but it's a fresh start. So that's one big difference is that when you're talking about an adult, there's a biome that exists. And anytime you're trying to change it, you have to undo something. For a baby, you're not so much undoing anything as trying to build the right ecosystem from scratch. And the other big difference is that this is a critical development window for the child. The first thousand days of their life, in the same way that their brain is developing and setting in patterns, their immune system is setting in patterns. So the risks of having the wrong microbiome for this particular phase are very different, right? It's like if you sat in the dark for one week as an adult, that would be horrific, but it's much more horrific to do that to a child who's going through specific development. Yeah. So you mentioned that there is debate about the biome in utero, and I've watched this conversation shift over time in relation to what we're born with, what are babies born with. So what does the latest research say? So it's inconclusive for in utero, right? Because when they do find bacteria or other microbes in the umbilical cord blood or in the placenta or in the fluids or whatever else, they're never totally sure that that isn't contamination because it's very hard to do that in a very sterile way. But 
you I mean you were born with a microbiome in the sense that you that moment you immediately get one right like there's not really a moment that your skin and stuff isn't covered in something like you pass through the birth canal and now boom you have a microbiome you know you swallow the vaginal fluids you suckle on your mom's breast boom you have a microbiome like it exists effectively immediately so i don't know when we say they are born without one it's just for seconds <laughs> right Maybe. right right and then you talked about the birth canal and we're always asking in functional medicine and functional nutrition practices we should be asking method of birth right for any child or adult so that we're understanding that first inoculation so to speak but what about babies who are not born vaginally and passing through the birth canal how would you speak to that exposure to the biome. Yeah. So well, one thing I want to note is that even if you're born vaginally, the state of that vaginal microbiome is really relevant, right? So we can't just differentiate vaginal versus C-section. Like if you're starting with a mother who has severe bacterial vaginosis or is in a dysbiotic state, maybe that's not a lot better than a C-section. And the second thing about a C-section is in some sense, it's the fact that the baby hasn't passed through the birth canal. So the first things they're touching, the gloves, the drapes, these are surface contaminants, right? They're not bacteria that naturally like thrive inside a human. They're distinct, they're different. But then the same thing, a baby would, once it comes through the vaginal canal, would quickly be in, in the world. So, it, you know, there's a lot of overlap there. The bigger, I think, although this is really, really hard to study, is the bigger issue in some ways with the C-section birth is the fact that you kind of have to have IV antibiotics, right? You're getting this huge dose of antibiotics. And that means that you're on it not only when you're delivering and they give it to the baby, but it's in your system for the first, you know, th three, four days of breastfeeding. And so you're giving the baby a very different microbiome through their breast milk and everything. So, you know, the immediate question becomes like, what do we do about it? And as practitioners, you'd see that there's always two sides to this. On the one hand, babies are really, really resilient. Human beings are resilient. And so a lot of kids will just naturally develop sort of the right microbiome, even, you know, drinking formula or whatever else. But this game is all about risk reduction. I like to think of it as like, you know, if life is a hurdles race, <laughs> the fewer hurdles the person has to jump over, the more likely they get to the end, the finish line, you know, of a happy, healthy 96-year life. <laughs> so the hurdles you want to remove are you could swab the baby with the vaginal fluids on their skin and everything to basically kind of compensate. Breastfeeding right away can really help set up the right highly bifidobacteria sort of set up in the baby's gut. Not washing them a ton afterwards and stripping their skin unnecessarily. And maybe, maybe, I'm not, I'm not totally sure because the data isn't great on this, but the right move for a lot of the C-section babies may be to quickly get on a, a probiotic to make sure that we're compensating for whatever was lost. Yeah, there's a number of things you mentioned there. I mean, we are looking at the method of birth that's going to populate the baby's biome, but we're also looking at the state of the mother, the pregnant parent who's giving birth to that child, and what is the state of their vaginal biome, or when they're taking the antibiotic, how are they processing that? So it's this very obviously synergistic process with the baby's biome and what's going on with the birthing parent. And there's a few things that you mentioned there, and there's some things you talk about in your book in terms of the rise of immune issues that we're seeing with children. Can you speak about some of those 
connections. I mean, I, I think they're familiar to us as functional medicine practitioners, but to hear somebody who's done your level of research with it, speak into it is really beneficial. Sure. I think functional medicine practitioners have long understood this to be the case that the rise in dysbiosis and the rise in these chronic and immune conditions has been working in lockstep, right? So there's maybe it was just correlation, but it seemed really causative. And I think what's really come out is not so much that that's the new finding, it's that we're seeing the true causal pathways. Like they're now at the level where they can do the study and say, hey, well, when this population is missing this particular Prevotella species, the rate of type 1 diabetes jumps by Y. And you can see there was this beautiful, beautiful study that was done where they looked at, you know, you hold for the genetic combinations, taking babies in Finland and Russian Kerala. So genetically exactly the same babies. Interestingly, the Finnish babies were being breastfed longer, but they had like 6x the rate of type 1 diabetes and other things. But they were following these babies. So they were able to actually see the differences in their microbiomes. And it was like, it was the presence of specific species, like specific bifidobacteria species. Interestingly, the presence of E. coli in the gut biome was protective. And the specific species at specific developmental phases seemed to you know, trigger the development of these immune diseases. And again, the causative way that happens is on the one hand, we have specific bacteria that utilize our immune system to fight each other off, right? They're just, they're just living in their world trying to, you know, set up their condos and they want to kick each other out. And so that's for, for protective reasons for themselves or even, you know, to buy themselves space. But the other side of it is, of course, there's bacteria that just by nature of their own outputs trigger or don't trigger our immune system. They can either trigger the development of sort of immune regulatory cells or trigger the development of sort of inflammatory cells. And now we can actually see those pathways much more clearly. And we're not there yet, but we're getting closer to the place where we can say that the presence of X bacteria at Y time will prevent Z disease. Right, right. And I think that when we get this specific, it helps us understand not necessarily exactly what to do because we can't always play target practice, but the terrain in which we're working. So, you know, I work off of a model that I created called Three Roots, Many Branches. And you're speaking about those three roots. The three roots are the genes digestion, and inflammation. And when we think about digestion, we have to think about that microbial piece. So how do we shift the terrain? And what I hear you talking about is it's the microbial makeup, but that comes back to both quantity and diversity and how that diversity works together within each unique system. Yep. And, and it's so easy to see. I mean, and I think, again, everybody understands this is when you look at a thriving ecosystem and it's always i think easiest to kind of picture a wildflower garden or like a jungle right which is that there's no any one of those species on their own would not thrive right and you you could take out random species and have that entire ecosystem collapse it's all about how they work together and the kind of balance that they found that makes the ecosystem thrive and you pull out any one species or increase the population of that species and you just completely shift that ecosystem in weird ways, right? Like that, my favorite example is like the way they, you know, they re-released wolves into Yellowstone and then how that, you know, affected the deer population and that affected the bird population and that affected the cleanliness of the water. And you know what I mean? It has all these crazy second, third order consequences that are, when we think about animals, it's like we're seeing it with our eyes. 
And that's really the challenge with the microbiome is that because they all just look like bacteria does, right? And so you can't, you don't get that same satisfaction of, in some way of like seeing the thing shift. And yet that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, that was a great analogy to think about. And when we look at the risk reduction equation that you mentioned, we can think about the antibiotics that you also mentioned that might be happening with a C-section birth. I know you talk about diet in the book. Mm-hmm. So How of course we want to <laughs> So what are our other triggers for not risk reduction, but like impact? I guess it's the opposite. What would be the opposite of our risk reduction, (laughs) our increased uh, challenges? I think one of the ones that I've found that's really affected me the most is the skincare practices and how fragile the infant skin is, right? But the skin is our largest, well, in some ways our gut is our largest immune organ, right? But in many ways, the skin is our largest immune organ, And it's doing a lot of the most work because it's constantly interacting with the outside world. A baby is so fragile and we just don't treat it like this precious, uh, you know, shatterable glass that it kind of is. And so little things that we take from our own practices, like it seems so normal. It's almost like I can't get into the shower without using soap. You know, there honestly isn't probably a huge reason for me to do that on a daily basis anyway, but it's definitely no reason for a kid to do it. And, but it's not stripping my skin of its natural barriers the way it is to a baby. It's not just about that sort of visceral stripping of the skin. It's that when you break that barrier, you can actually sensitize that child to a whole lot of things. Because when things can cross that skin barrier, the immune system flares, right? And it specifically flares to the things that have crossed the barrier. And don't forget that any foods we eat in our house, the cats, the dogs, they're leaving their dander everywhere. So you break that barrier and you might not even notice it. The kid rolls in cat dander and, hey, now they're sensitized to the cat, right? And it's not quite that direct. I'm being a little bit dramatic here, but but it's not not that direct either, you know? Right. I mean, it depends on the kid, their sensitivities, their gut, their biome, their immune system at the time. Yes, so many things. So let's get a little bit tactical in terms of nurturing the baby's biome during pregnancy and then at birth. So let's just start with what do we as practitioners speak into about supporting the baby's biome during pregnant months? I think one is really looking into the mom's, you know, vaginal microbiome. What's the state of that? I think the clearest signs are if you're having recurring yeast infections or UTIs or this or that, like that's not a great sign, right? So let's, like you want to be in a normal, healthy state. Let's call it that, right? If the mom is experiencing a ton of inflammation or flares of, you know, of any kind, that's also not a great sign and should probably be dealt with to the best that, you know, a practitioner can. But the mom's going to try and do all the same things, right? Sun, good diet rest, exercise. These are, you know, the basic building blocks of health are not surprising. You know, the the basic building blocks of healthy bacteria that have evolved with us for hundreds of thousands of years. So that's the biggest thing. I think the exposure to chemicals is way more pernicious than I would have liked to believe. And I talk about this in the book that it's really hard because you give up so much of your agency when you're pregnant. You know, it just, it comes, seems to come from all sides. People just like treating you like this vehicle for a baby. And it's really, it's like psychologically difficult to deal with. And yet it's also not wrong. And I'm not totally sure how we all balance that, but like the exposure to the volatile chemicals, you know, little things like don't paint that baby's room, 
Let someone else do it. Wait till that air clears out. Don't use the harsh cleaning products. Get rid of all of your, you know, if there's a time to not be using a ton of chemicals on your face and in your hair and everything else, that's the time. None of these things have been perfectly studied, but there's just probably no way that like the keratin treatment is helpful to your microbiome. I'm not sure that it's negative, (laughs) but it's probably not great for it. So I think like that's really it is like as low toxin as you can go. I think unfortunately that is the time to do it. Yeah. And so many things in the book that you talk about that do support the mom's biome for that passageway and that transmission to our baby. And like you said, it's the things, it's all the things, it's all things matter, as I like to say. So when baby is born, you mentioned bringing in probiotics. It's something I've always liked to recommend a powdered probiotic, even right on the nipple during breastfeeding. What did you find about probiotics and other methods for supporting baby's biome? You mentioned what not to do also, no soap. Yeah. (laughs) When it comes to probiotics, the biggest challenges we have are likely the species that are the most advantageous to us don't grow easily in manufacturing settings. All the ones that we really produce are derivatives of milk products because we can scale the manufacturing of those. And so some of them are helpful, right? Like I mentioned that B. Infantis, B. Breve, B. Longum, all of those. I actually have a paper coming out in the Journal of Clinical Dermatology doing a meta-analysis that showed across 10 different clinical studies, you could see that L-rhamnosis, but only if it was taken in the third trimester and during the breastfeeding, you could cut the risk of eczema by 50%. But if you only take it in pregnancy or only take it afterwards, it doesn't seem to have that statistical benefit. And it's not totally clear why L-rhamnosis works. It might be actually because the presence of L-rhamnosis helps the bifidobacteria species implant and thrive. We don't really know. But my point is that very few probiotics have actually been extensively studied and shown to have a specific outcome. That doesn't mean that they're not helpful. It's just really hard to say. And I think that there's going to be way more research into this. We'll come up with more clever ways, you know, highly acidic environments and things to be able to grow the species that actually thrive in our guts. It hasn't been needed today. And so it hasn't been done. And so I think probiotics and and that sort of bacterial-based medicine is where we'll go in the future. So anyway, so kind of answering your question though, is that the L-rhamnosis taken perinatally, definitely helpful. And specifically for prevention of the allergic eczema. And then probably those bifidobacteria species that we really want in the early gut, that we want to be dominant in the early gut, those can't hurt to add in. Yeah. And before, I think it was before we hit record, Mino, you talked a little bit about the causative versus the correlative. And this is a conversation I always love because I believe that in order to fill many of the gaps in healthcare, we have to be thinking correlatively. I mean, the last few years have shown us that we can't just look causatively with the research as long as we are doing no harm. I'm wondering as somebody who is researching and deep in the science, did that shift for you, that conversation of causative versus correlative while you were doing this research? I think in a broad sense, it did. I'll give you an example, which is that I've seen it studied a number of times now, like 
the question of can food allergies cause eczema or atopic dermatitis, right? And they keep coming up. There was a studies that said no for a long time. And recent, more recent studies kind of say like, yes, but only in a small percentage of cases. And yet when you pull the food out of people's diet, it gets better. And so like, I don't know what to make of that. Like, I don't know why what we're seeing in the real world is not what's being found in the papers, right? And so I had this argument with my own doctor and I said, look, like I can only do the correct question, the Coke method of introduce the variant, see if something shifts, remove the variant, see if it shifts back, right? And so like, I can do that with my kid is take a food out of his diet, things get better. You put it back in, things go back to the state, take it out again, you know, like, and you can repeat that. And you're like, well, that tells me that's causative. And that's an example of one where I think there's a lot more inflammation and allergy that we don't understand and we haven't been able to define yet. Correct. Yeah. That's how I would agree with what you're saying, that there's a lot, we're not doing harm. We're actually supporting and it takes that trial and error and that tracking. Mino, I know your book is your way of shouting from the rooftops and you've been through (laughs) this as a parent. You've been through it as a researcher and a scientist and a business creator If there were one thing that you wish practitioners knew and we were doing differently to understand the importance of the baby biome, what would that be? So the thing I always come back to is this idea of bad mental models. And I think that when you're steeped in a space, you forget that other people aren't thinking about that thing. And I can't explain to you how deeply... (laughs) people don't understand and can't have a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea that the problem is inside us, not coming from the outside. We've just been so long taught to believe, you know, in the germ theory of disease that the problem comes from the outside or that the problem is genetic. And so I think one of the things that gets lost is that you create this cognitive dissonance when you tell someone to exercise, to manage their, let's say, uh, like a mental disorder, right? That doesn't make any sense if you think about it. If you only think of diseases as caused by viruses or genetics, you're like, why would that possibly help? And when people don't understand the reasons and the rationale behind why they're doing things, it's very hard to get their buy-in and their commitment. So I think the best use case of this book for practitioners is really to help parents and families understand the science and why they're making the recommendations they are. And then you can have their buy-in because once you understand how this recommendation is going to affect things or why it's affecting things, and that was the goal. That was the goal of the book was really to answer this for parents or to, to teach this to parents. But I think that's something I wish more practitioners understood is that, you know, you're already way down the road and your patients are still at the start line. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so brilliant. I love that you're saying that the problem doesn't exist outside of us. And what I would love to add to that is the solution and resolution exists within us as well. And when we can make those associations and those connections, as you offered, the dopamine kicks in, we can see the long-term benefit as opposed to being stuck in the, this doesn't serve me right now. Mino, thank you for the work that you've done, for sharing your wisdom with us today. I can't wait to share the book with everybody listening. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on.
The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks go out to Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, Sandra Brower, Evan Hollingsworth, Heidi Kaufman-Lakowitz, and Rowan Bradley for their support making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your client's issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.